Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for answering prayer, Lord. Thank you for the rain we so desperately needed. And uh, thank you for sending more. And Lord, this morning we come to your word to get uh, to wash ourselves in your word. That it might wash our spirits and refresh us and renew our minds. Reveal more the wonder of who you are outside of time. Planning all our days before one of them came to be. And speaking through your, your prophets and your apostles and, and giving us this word, we thank you for it. Help us to understand it, Lord, and apply it as you would have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And there's uh, a couple of people who are online and want to wish Jory and Dave Waning a happy birthday, guys. Sorry you couldn't be here, but we wish you a happy birthday. Today we are in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going from verse 15 to 22. If you're a guest with us this morning, this is we just go through a book of the Bible, passage by passage, and you just happen to have joined us in the middle of Galatians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, trying to help them understand why they didn't need to uh, go back to the laws of Moses or go to the laws of Moses to be circumcised and do all the things in the law, how Christ had fulfilled the law for us. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? Galatians chapter 3 from verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, rather referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, you know, we stand when we read our passage for the, the message that day in from God's word because we want to emphasize the difference between the pure word of God and teaching about the word. While teaching may or may not be inspired, every word of God is sacred. And if you haven't yet listened to the blog on our website about Bible numerics, 
um, take time to go to the church website and listen to that brief blog of the incredible mystery of the patterns of seven woven throughout Old and New Testament in every single passages of Scripture. This divine fingerprint of God encourages our faith in the purity of the revelation of God in the Bible. The conviction of the sacredness and the power of the word is why the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy saying, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There is no greater study in the world than the study of God in the scriptures. There are times when, when I offer a person a Bible, I see they, they come and visit the church or they're walking by and we talk or something and maybe out front we have the Gospels of John and I'll offer them one. And every once in a while someone says, I already read it. And I, I, you know, every time I hear that, okay, yeah, I understand you don't want it. You read it, okay? I've been reading it since I was five years old, and I'm still getting treasures out of it. And Scripture says those treasures are worth more than gold and silver, and I believe it. While the world is so caught up in things that are seen and soon pass away, the word of God directs our spiritual eyes to that which is infinitely of more value, that which is eternal. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heaven. And yet so few people devote themselves to understanding the word of God. What we are devoted to declares the condition of our souls. To what are you devoted? We're all devoted to something. It's what we spend most of our time doing. Amen? I encourage you to devote yourself to the Word of God. Not just to have an intellectual understanding, but to know Christ. Our passage today is one of Paul's really deep subjects. One I, I believe that he discovered when he took that three years in the wilderness of Arabia, those three years trying to understand what he'd missed in the scriptures. How, how in the world could he, uh, a good Jewish man who studied Torah all his life, end up persecuting the Messiah who he was longing to have to see? So going back at the beginning of scripture, he discovered a promise in Genesis um, And before the law was written, which helped him understand what he'd missed, how he could have ended up so wrong. And it helped him interpret the rest of Scripture. You know, without the Spirit, we can read it, and like those, some people will say, oh, I read it. You know, it doesn't really mean anything. We need the Spirit of God to illuminate the Scripture to our hearts and help us understand them. Those in the church of Galatia were recently influenced by teachers who, who claimed the laws of Moses had to be observed if you were truly going to be saved. They needed to be circumcised. But Paul was trying to explain what he had discovered. He's pointing to scripture and the revelation that corrected his own misunderstanding. 
verse back to verse 15 in Galatians chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You can't add or change a covenant that's been ratified. Once it's signed, you can't go back and say, well, wait, wait, I want to add one more condition. <laughs> or I didn't mean to sign it yet. I've got something else I want to include. God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was a done deal. And as the following verses will explain, whatever came later doesn't change. It can't change the covenant because it was solemnly promised by God. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. God promised a singular male seed or offspring from Abraham was going to bless the world. And now sometimes that word seed is, is, is translated to imply many. But in this case, if you look at the Hebrew, it is a singular masculine word. That means Paul believes in the divine inspiration and protection of the scriptures. The original promise goes all the way back to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, who was promised a singular male heir who would crush the head of the serpent. That offspring or seed is the Messiah, a descendant of Abraham whose sacrificial death has brought salvation to the world, just as the prophet Isaiah predicted. Paul's understanding of the Genesis promise of one male descendant of Abraham being the Messiah is consistent with Jewish thought at the time. You know, some people, people like to say, in fact, I've heard this recently, well, they, when they took the New Testament, they changed what the Jews really meant, and they put the... If you go back earlier to the earlier rabbis and the earlier sages, and we can find some of that, that earlier thought in what we call the Targums. Targums are Jewish commentaries, often written in Aramaic, um, ideas that came from as far back as 200 B.C. It was compiled, though, those... Most of them were written from 100 to 300 A.D., but it's about the Jewish sayings that came before. And so it's kind of like commentaries that the Jews wrote on Scripture. And um, one of them, the Palestinian Targum, of this particular promise in Genesis 22:18, translates that verse like this. Listen to how the Jews thought of that expression. And all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed through the righteousness of thy son because thou hast obeyed my word. So they didn't just take offspring. They recognized it's singular male. And they added because of the righteousness of thy son, they were going to be blessed. So this tells us that what Paul is explaining was consistent with Jewish understanding this isn't something new thing that Paul's inserting. He's, he's telling those Gentiles and the Jews that were at the church, this has been a long time coming. This is a promise that goes way back, thousands of years back. The coming of a descendant of Abraham 
who through his righteousness, the world would be blessed. And that's very important because the wording in Isaiah chapter 53, if Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53 is one of, it's the gospel in the Old Testament written 700 years before Christ. It tells of, of Jesus taking on our iniquities upon himself and suffering for our sake. And in that verse 11 of chapter 53, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, that is the, the suffering servant, the one who's gonna take our, our sins upon himself, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, when you talk to Jews today about Isaiah 53, um, first of all, many of them have never heard of it because they don't teach it in Torah school. They skip over this chapter. But for those who've heard it or who rabbis who have pre-warned them about Christians talking about this passage, they say, oh, this is about Israel. I said, and I would say, oh, Israel is the righteous one? Really? Tell me when in Israel's history were they the righteous one? Because the Bible story of Israel is very honest. It's just like us. I think that's why God picked them always stumbling, always falling, doubting, going back, worshiping idols, and God keeps drawing them and drawing them. This righteous one is the seed talked about in Genesis chapter 22. If we believe the inspiration of scripture, we can see from this prophecy that, that there was coming a righteous one, the servant of God, and it's out of the anguish of his soul that many, not all, many will be accounted as righteous because he's going to bear, take upon himself, carry our iniquity, our sins. The question before the Galatians is what role the law plays in making us righteous? Can the laws God gave us make us righteous? Do we have to enter, does, do the men have to enter into the covenant of circumcision? Do we have to eat kosher and so forth? And Paul's taking them back to the promise to Abraham before the law and telling them, no, it's the descendant from Abraham, the promised one, the righteous one, who God said would make us righteous before God because of his own righteousness. After living a sinless life, Jesus took our sins upon himself to the cross and gave us his righteousness. Hallelujah. Amen? Praise God. Without that, we don't have any hope because no one can keep the law. None of us can be perfect in God's eyes. The law doesn't provide a way for us to be made right in God's eyes. It just points us to the one who can. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So let's try to carefully follow Paul's thought. I mean, um, Paul is a student of the 
most qualified rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, who was a student of one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history, um, Hillel. And so Paul is appointed by the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of Israel, to go out and persecute Christians. And he comes to Christ and he has this revelation and he starts preaching Christ. And so he, this who's steeped in the Jewish understanding, is explaining to us from their scriptures, from his scriptures. But the way that their rabbis argued is really deep and detailed understanding of the word and different passages of the word. So sometimes it's a little hard to follow Paul. Actually, Peter said that in his letter. Paul's letters are a little hard to understand because Paul had so much more training than Peter. The law given to Moses could not void the covenant God made with, with Abraham because it came 430 years early. Uh, the covenant of Abraham came 430 years before the law. The law can't nullify something that was approved, ratified before. Verse 15 declares God's promises cannot be altered once they're given on an unconditional basis. The promise was unconditional as it was given in response to Abraham's demonstration of faith in God's word. God didn't add any requirements. He just said, this is the blessing. You're going to have this male heir who's going to bless the world. Abraham believed God's word when God spoke that to him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And for those of you who know the story, a little bit later, he proves his faith in God's word, in that promise. The covenant was God's response to Abraham's faith in what God said. God said that through Isaac, Abraham would have as many descendants as the stars could be counted in heaven. So Abraham responded and reasoned that if God asked him to sacrifice Isaac on Moriah, on Mount Moriah, that God would have to raise him from the dead. God can't lie. God said through Isaac, you're this blessed one's going to come and your descendants will be the stars of the heaven. So, okay, God, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. So, if you, you know the story, God stopped Abraham before it happened and God provided the ram that was caught in the thicket all of which is foreshadowing us believing in the righteousness of Jesus, the Lamb of God, provided by God on Mount Moriah, on the same mountain. Since the law given to Moses came after the covenant that was given by God, it does not supersede the covenant. It was a separate set of terms promising physical prosperity for the nation of Israel. If you could live the law completely with without failing at any point, it would bring life, but no one could live it completely. One person did live it completely, the righteous one. He never failed to live up to God's law. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by law, it's no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The covenant with Abraham was a promise to him because he believed God's word. The laws of Moses 
didn't give the promise of righteousness. You can look all through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, looking for the promise of life, you won't find it. There, there's no righteousness that comes through the law. But, but there is a promise of righteousness, I'll explain in a minute. If it only promised, the law only promised temporary covering of sin and physical prosperity, if you could obey it. So Paul's noting the difference between these two covenants, between the promise to Abraham and the, the laws given to Moses. The law promised physical blessing for obedience. The promise to Abraham was given because he believed God and acted in faith. That promised blessing to the people of the world didn't have a condition attached to it. It is received not by obedience, but by faith, resulting in obedience. Receiving that promise, Jesus as our Savior, only requires our faith to believe. That's when we receive the inheritance of righteousness by faith, just as Abraham received it. Somebody said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Paul. James chapter 2 says, show me your faith. Uh, show me your faith and I'll show you my works that prove my faith. That's right. But the faith preceded the works. Just like Abraham's faith preceded him acting on what God said on Mount Moriah. Since we're all fallen people, incapable of being holy on our own, how then can we choose to believe? This is a, a question that theologians bring up, and they argue about uh, uh, Armenian Calvinism, all of these doctrines. Uh, where, where do you stand on this? It's a big issue. But say, So they say, if you're fallen, how can you possibly believe unless God makes you believe? Isn't our nature set against believing because we're born in sin? Yes, our nature is, but the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. He brings the light of Jesus to everyone who comes into the world. That's John 1, 9. He sets before all who ever lived the choice that Joshua set before Israel. Choose this day who you will serve. And with the vision of the two paths clarified by the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to make a clear choice between self or God. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So if salvation's always been by grace through faith, why did God give the law to Israel? Well, mankind, the nation of Israel at the time, needed something to curb our destructive tendencies until the Messiah came. The law was a guideline to live productive lives. It's full of promises of the coming Messiah and why we need him. It contained judicial laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws outlined in the Ten Commandments. We should understand that the judicial and ceremonial laws were given verbally to Moses during his 40 days on the mountain. But the moral laws were written in stone by the finger of God. 
When Moses came down and saw that people had broken all the moral laws, in his righteous anger, he smashed those stone tablets. He returned to the mountain for another 40 days, miraculously sustained by God. Now, physically, you cannot survive more than about three days without water. Moses went up the mountain for 40, came back down, smashed the tablets, went up for another 40. That's 80 days without water. So he was miraculously sustained by God, and God again wrote in with his finger in tablets of stone the Ten Commandments that he brought down to the people. So when we talk about doing away with the law because Christ has come, we're talking about the judicial and the ceremonial laws that God gave Israel. They were given on a temporary basis until the promised Messiah. The moral law, however, written in stone, the meaning of that never changes. What changed was the means of atoning for our moral failures was no longer the shadow, but the reality. By that I mean the blood of animals, the sacrifices, only showed the seriousness of sin. They didn't remove sin. God was never pleased with them, the scripture says in Psalm 40 verse 6. The only way to re really remove our sins was God's provision through Christ, the sinless one, the righteous one, taking our sins and the penalty upon himself. Though Christ has come, we're still commanded to worship only the one true living God and to have no other gods before him. That's the first commandment. Wait a minute. I thought all the commandments were gone. We're forbidden to worship idols for no man-made image can represent our eternal Father who is a spirit. We're for forbidden to commit murder, adultery, theft, lie, to perjure ourselves. That's because those forbidden things are inconsistent with the nature and character of God who is holy. He cannot lie. He is faithful. He's the only true God. The promise of the offspring came first, before the law. Then the laws given through Moses came to help the people get through life and through those hundreds of years until Christ came. Without the Holy Spirit living in our hearts of mankind, there needed to be those guidelines to guide people in the best way to live until the Messiah came and made a way for a new covenant through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, his law in our hearts, living as God intended and in accord with his nature by design uh, the best way to sojourn here. However, none of us can live up to that standard without failing, and that's why we needed the righteous one to do it in our place and take our punishment. Verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies that more than one, but God is one. So I'm not sure here, and, and, and uh, those who make commentaries aren't sure whether the intermediary that Paul's talking about is Moses or the angels or both. But in the case of the promise with Abraham, God himself made the covenant. This tells us the superiority of the covenant over the late, later one and of the unconditional promise with Abraham. Paul's saying 
God's not contradicting his promise to Abraham with the law, but rather he's preparing people for the coming promise to Abraham and the inheritance. Moses met with angels on Sinai and God blessed the people with the law to be their guardian or as another translation puts it, their schoolmaster until the promise came. Until Jesus came to live that righteous life and offer that up for our sins. That makes those who receive his righteousness inheritors of the faith of Abraham. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed be by the law. Six times in the law in Leviticus and Exodus, after the telling the people how important it was to obey the law, God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He says, obey these laws, they're very important because I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now we could read that as meaning obey because I, the Lord, set you apart. Or we could read it, I ask you to obey, but it is I, the Lord, who makes you holy. In fact, the Exodus verse that contains this passage declares that the command was given so that you may know that it is the Lord who makes you holy. The implication can be that it's not obedience because we're unable to obey, but the Lord himself who makes us holy by his own work, the blessing that was coming through the sacrifice of the Messiah. Psalm 14, one to three declares there is no one righteous, not even one single person. That's because the Messiah had not yet come and through his sacrifice sanctified us. If we read those seven verses as, as the Lord sanctifies Israel, therefore they were to obey the law, the psalmist couldn't have written, none are righteous. Therefore the law was pointing to people to trust in God, to sanctify them through the coming Messiah, the blessing that was to come through the descendant of Abraham. If there were ever the right conditions for the law to give life, it was with the children of Israel when they entered into the wilderness. They saw miracles daily. They were just set free from slavery. They saw the, the law delivered by God and the smoke and, and lightning and the mountain shaking. They were a new nation with a set of laws delivered by God. They were isolated from the rest of the world and they had just 10 main rules. It was the whole nation motivated to keep the laws and be blessed physically, but even then they didn't come anywhere close to obeying them. The law could not give them righteousness. That is what the law itself declared in its repetition of sacrifices and in that expression, I, the Lord, sanctifies you. In addition, there was no sacrifice for intentional sin mentioned in the law. That alone shows you the only place, it was only in place for a time until God provided the sacrifice for all sin. Just as Abraham declared on the very mountain where Jesus would one day be sacrificed, 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Boy, you could read that in several different ways. And one of them is so beautifully prophetic of God giving his son. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In clarifying to Israel what was expected of them, God made them even more accountable for disobedience. But on the other hand, the pictures presented by the worship rituals of the law and its declarations all pointed to God's provision of a savior. Moses even clearly predicted his coming in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. God's going to raise up from your brothers someone like me, and to him you must listen. This imprisonment under sin applies to all who know the law but cannot keep it. The Old Testament saints, by faith, look forward to the promise of the coming Messiah and were saved, and that was made possible when Jesus fulfilled the promise. They were included in the blessing to Abraham's seed. God did provide the true sacrifice that would take away sin, just as Abraham declared to Isaac, Jesus went up the same mountain as Abraham and Isaac climbed. Like Isaac, he carried the wood of his sacrifice, and he too believed that God would raise him. This time, God allowed man to go through with it for our sake. And God did raise Jesus from among the dead as proof that the, accept, the sacrifice was accepted and that his word is sure. You see the connection with the descendants of Abraham's faith and the belief in resurrection? The promise to bless the world was fulfilled. By faith, we take hold of the blessing just as Abraham did and have the promise of everlasting life. We believe and it's counted to us as righteousness because Jesus received the penalty for our sins. We believe God's promise just as Abraham did, only we don't see it as physical descendants, but as spiritual descendants who have the same faith that Abraham did. We, like Abraham, believe in resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And that's one reason Jesus had to rise from the dead, to show that the faith of Abraham and that all who believe, which will result in the conquest of death. It showed Abraham's faith was not misplaced, nor is ours. And that's why when Paul saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus, he had to go back to the scriptures and see what it was that he missed. Abraham believed in resurrection, and then Paul did too. Seeing the resurrected Christ caused him to, in his mind to go back to Mount Moriah, where only a few years before, Jesus had been sacrificed. And remember what took place there with Abraham and the promise to Abraham. The descendant who came to bless the world was the very one he was persecuting, and resurrection was the proof of it. The promise came before the law and is the fulfillment of the law. God's plan of saving mankind 
has never changed. Paul summed it up so succinctly in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Jesus paid the penalty we deserve. The Father accepts that as justice met and counts it our belief as righteousness. Then the Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out. Praise God. Amen. Have you received the gift of salvation?